listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Smack dab in the middle of Abraham's life. And it's been quite the adventure. Uh, I saw a little bit of an adventure going on this week. I came home uh, one day this week, and especially those of you who have little girls may have experienced this. I come home, and there's some project that is just strewn across the whole kitchen. And there's my daughter Hannah with all these sheets of paper and scissors, and she's, what she's doing, I've come to find out, is she's cutting out name tags for each and every one of her uh, stuffed animals. We call them sweeties. That's what stuffed animals are called in the house. They're called sweeties. And she spent all this time naming her sweeties and writing name tags for them. And so I told her, y'all, that this morning she could come introduce us to some of her friends. So Hannah, you want to come up? Y'all, let's give her a hand. Hannah, come up and join us. How come y'all don't say all when I come up here? What's so, what's so bad? Okay, come on up, come on up. Uh, so Hannah, you've got four of your friends, is that right? Yes. Okay, let's turn where everybody can see them. So why don't you just go ahead, introduce us to, to who these are one at a time. This is Snowflake. Snowflake, okay. Now, why did you name this one Snowflake? Because it's white. White like a snowflake, that's perfect, okay. This is Whiskers. Whiskers, because she's a cat, right? Yeah. Okay, that's a cute one. This is C-Dub. Oh, this is the biggest one. Let's see. So this is a dog named C-Dub. There we go, and we got one more. This is Milk. Milk? Why did you name this one Milk? Because it's a cow. That makes perfect sense. It's a little puppet too. All right, there you go. Hannah, thank you so much for introducing us to your friends. I think you got some great sweeties. So real quick, tell everyone, how many sweeties do you have? I know you counted. 45. Y'all, I know. Listen, we've tried to stop it. She's cute. People just bring them to her. We can't stop it. We can only hope to contain it. Okay, that's where we are. Hannah, thank you so much for coming up here. Let's give her a hand. So that was fun to come home to, but I got to thinking, you know, as we were studying this patch today, what, why would Hannah sit there and spend all day taking the time to name each and every sweetie, each and every uh, stuffed animal that she has? Well, it's the same time, same reason any of us name a pet, uh, our children, we name things because they belong to us and because they're important to us and because they are our prized possession. And that's what we're going to see this week. So let's recap a little bit. We're kind of walking down this uh, road with Abraham. You can kind of see it as the education of Abraham. And so what happened in chapter 12 is God interrupted Abraham's life. Abraham was doing just fine, and, but then he didn't get a vote. Uh, he didn't get to decide anything. All of a sudden, God just appeared to Abraham and totally changed the course of his life. And then last week, we saw chapter 15, God sets this covenant with Abraham. And today in chapter 17, this is a section we call the mighty oath. Well, God will reaffirm his promises. But y'all understand, it's been 15 years between chapter 17 and chapter 15. It's been 13 years since Abraham has heard from God at all. And some of the promises he got in chapter 12, there are, things are happening. Some of them are happening. He's, he's being blessed. He's getting herds and flocks. And he's kind of growing in esteem and wealth. And so that's all going well. But there's one promise 
one promise that seems more impossible than ever. This promise Abraham is losing hope about, not gaining hope as time goes on. And that promise is the promise of a son. It seems so impossible, as a matter of fact, that uh, in chapters 13, 14, Abraham takes it, things into his own hands. And he uh, has Ishmael by his servant Hagar. And by now, though, by the time we get to chapter 17, Hagar is a teenager. He's 13 years old. And another son, another option doesn't even seem more likely. It seems like it's just Ishmael. But remember, this is what this is all about. This whole book is about God, the fact that God wants us to trust him enough that we build our whole lives on his promise. And that's called faith. That's what the Bible calls faith. And so it's, we get to chapter 17, I think God's thinking, okay, how can I show Abram that he can trust me? That he can build his whole life on my promise? How can I show him that I have bound myself to him forever and ever, that I will not forsake him? How can I show Abram that he is my special possession? Well, what he does is exactly what Hannah did with all of her sweeties. He gives him a new name. In fact, we're going to see four new names given in this chapter. And throughout the Bible, when God gives you a name, it's always a sign of God's favor. It's always a sign of God's blessing. It's always a sign that God has a plan for your life. When God names you, that means you belong to him. And that means he has a purpose for your life. So let's open up to Genesis 17. We'll read the first three verses and then pause to talk about it a little bit. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. And be blameless, that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. Okay, so let's pause there. It's the first new name we get here. It's not for Abram. The first new name we get is for God. Now, it's new to us. It's not new to him. But this is the first use of the name God Almighty, El Shaddai. Amy Grant sang it in the 90s. And it's stuck in my head all week and I can't get it out, right? El Shaddai, the mighty God. The word, the Hebrew word, it comes from this idea of a mountain. And so you can picture, if you're like a nomad in the ancient Near East, the biggest, most immovable, incomprehensible thing you can see with your eyes is a big, huge mountain. And so this name, El Shaddai, God Almighty, came to mean the God who powerfully intervenes. Because he's bigger, he's more powerful than you can ever imagine. Nothing, nothing can move him. It's a word that's used 48 times in the Old Testament, this name. And almost always it's used when someone is facing insurmountable obstacles. I call it the pickle name for God because when you're in a pickle, you call on El Shaddai. You call on God Almighty. And that's exactly where Abraham finds himself when it comes to this promise of an offspring. Y'all, he's 99 years old. He's so old, he doesn't even buy green bananas because he's afraid he may not live to eat them. That's how old he is. And this promise seems more impossible by the second, by the minute. There's no way that this can happen. So verse 2, God reminds 99-year-old Abram that he wants to make a covenant with him. Now, there's something we have to understand here. We're used to contracts. But a biblical covenant is not like a contract. Because in a contract, 
the uh, relationship is secondary. The terms are primary. So you've probably bought or sold a house having never met the person you bought or sold the house from because the terms of the contract are primary. If you meet them or get to know them, that's all secondary. That doesn't really matter all that much. But in a covenant, the relationship is everything. It's everything. The whole purpose of a covenant is to create an ongoing relationship of love and loyalty. That's why you make a covenant. So the details, the stipulations, they're secondary. And in fact, really, they're just ways of describing what this relationship will look like. It's kind of a DTR, a define the relationship. And so you may notice here in, in, in other biblical covenants and in other, other covenants in the ancient Near East, the detail, there won't be a lot of details. They'll be slim. And often there'll be more just generic descriptions of what this relationship is going to look like. And that's what we find here. So, how does one enter into a covenant relationship with God Almighty? Someone who's just revealed himself to be El Shaddai. Well, he tells us. He says, two things. All you got to do is two things, Abram. Super easy. Number one, walk before me. And this is a picture of uh, guidance and authority. And so think of it, if you've ever had little kids, you know, you go to like a, a park somewhere, or you go to maybe the, the county fair or the state fair, and they're running around, and at some point you'll have to shout, stay where I can see you. Don't run off, right? Why do you do that? Because you want to maintain authority. You want them to be able to respond to your voice. So when you say, don't eat that off the floor, they can hear you say it, and they won't do it. But it's also you do it for protection. You know, I need to be able to intervene if I need to, if something happens. The same description is used for shepherds with their sheep in the Old Testament. And it's expected of Davidic kings. And so the picture is, you know, the, the people are under the king's authority, but the king is under God's authority. So God is saying, Abram, here, here's, what, here's what this relationship has to look like. You need to take directions only from me and be devoted to me without reservation. So that's one. Number two, be blameless. Be blameless. Now, men and women, I got bad news. You know what this word means? It means blameless. That's what it means. And you'll see different commentators try to soften the word, like, oh, it just means try your best, you know. It's not what it means. It's a word they would use often for animals who were said to be whole, perfect, without defect. And those animals were supposed to be a picture of innocence and sinlessness in the sacrificial system. Sometimes it's translated integrity. So it's got this idea, not just of outward obedience, I'm doing the things, I'm going through the motions, but internal, pure character. It means impeccable, honest, sincere. That's what it means. And so we read this and we have to ask, okay, does God expect obedience? Everyone nod your head. Yes. Yes, he does. He does expect obedience. In fact, this is the strongest language yet that he's used with Abraham to communicate his standard, his perfect standard. And sometimes, you know, sometimes we make it out as if, you know, God Almighty comes and says, okay, you know what, here's my perfect standard. Uh, but then he sees Abraham fumble along and he just changes his mind. He says, you know what, just tell you what, just do the best you can and we'll count that. But, you know, God is not some like mafia boss in a dark Italian restaurant 
saying, hey, forget about it. I like you, kid. Don't worry about it. No, no, no. God's standard is based on his character. That doesn't change, no matter what Abraham does. And speaking of, he's still Abram at this point. How's he doing so far? You think he heard this, be blameless? And he's like, killing it. Got it. No problem. I hope not. As the reader, it should be clear to us, Abram's best just isn't going to cut it. It's not going to cut it. See, there's a reason. And we should feel this tension. But I I think there's a reason that God says this after he has revealed himself as God Almighty. He's saying, this is the standard. Abram's going to keep being a doofus, but the promise won't be threatened at all. God Almighty will do it. What will he do? He'll do both sides. He's saying, just as surely as God will keep his promises on one side, he will provide blamelessness on the other. See, often, you know, when us theology nerds, we study the Old Testament and talk about covenants, you'll often hear them put into categories as unilateral or bilateral. Meaning, is it conditional or not? If it's unilateral, there's no if, no conditions, it's going to happen. If it's bilateral, there's an if there, and so if you don't do your side of the covenant, it's not going to happen. I'm not sure those categories are helpful. You know, I understand what we're trying to do, we're, we're, we're trying to figure out, okay, is God really going to do what he said he's going to do? But the original audience in the ancient Near East, they didn't understand covenants in those terms. So when we understand how they understood it, I think what will happen is we'll see just how almighty God Almighty is. See, in the ancient Near East, they understood the covenant. It's one thing. It's one thing. You can't break up the pieces and the parts and say, well, maybe some of this and, and maybe some of that. And so for the covenant to be kept... If you ask them, hey, does God have to fulfill his promises? They'd say, "Uh uh-huh. And then if you said, well, does there need to be blamelessness? They'd have said, "Uh uh-huh, because it's all one covenant. And y'all, the Jewish people are going to spend the next few thousands of years trying to be the one to provide the blamelessness, and not a single one of them will be able to do it. But then Jesus comes. This man, Jesus, shows up in the gospel. They go out of the way to point out the fact, the fact that Jesus is a direct descendant of Abraham. And it's the gospel's way of saying that this Jesus, he's the new, better Abraham. So that now we can go back and read Genesis 17, and it should help us recognize Jesus. Because we read this and we say, Abram doesn't have a chance. And neither do I, and neither do you. But then we see Jesus doing it. We see him always walking before God. We see him being blameless. And we say, God Almighty did it. He kept the covenant. He made the covenant happen. And then when John the Baptist first sees this Jesus coming, what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's saying, you want to see spotless? You want to see blameless? He just walked in the door. And he can take away your sins. And did you notice Abraham's response in verse 3? What does he do? He falls on his face. This is an act of awe, reverence, worship. Some of you 
need to do a little less trying to be blameless, a little less trying to earn it, and a little more worshiping. You can't add to the blamelessness of Jesus Christ. God Almighty, through Jesus, if he's providing the blamelessness, you can't add to it. Y'all, that'd be like Mozart shows up, hops in the piano back here, plays one of his masterpieces, and I say, you know what, I think I can add to that. And I get up there with my fat, clumsy fingers and my tone-deaf ears and start playing something. I'm not going to add anything to that, right? The appropriate response when Mozart plays his masterpiece is applause. That's the only appropriate response. So it is with God. When he provides the blamelessness you need, only appropriate response is worship. And I know, I know as soon as I say this, because I said to myself, well, wait, 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 wait. Doesn't our obedience matter? I mean, doesn't what we do matter at least a little bit? Yes. But think of it like a parent. You know, the things a parent tells their kids to do, are they for the kids good? Yes. Will it go better for the kid if they do those things? Yes, absolutely. That's, that's all true. But... Those things are not for the child to perform for them. I don't tell my kids things to do for them to earn for me. Neither my love for them nor their status as my child has anything to do with their obedience. I love them because they're my children. Full stop. End of story. At, your, at best, at best, your obedience can help you experience now the blessings of God that are already yours for all eternity as a child of God, at best. At worst, at worst, your disobedience can lead to consequences that, yes, they are real, they are harmful, but temporary. Neither your obedience nor your disobedience can make you blameless before God. And neither one can make you more or less of his child if you've put your trust, your faith, your dependence on Jesus Christ. That means, that means God's not disappointed in you. Everybody hear that? God is not disappointed in you. When he sees you, he is delighted. He is proud of you. He brags on you because when he sees you, he sees the perfect Jesus who has always walked before him and always been blameless. I know, I know. I know you don't deserve it, but God Almighty has made it happen. El Shaddai made it happen. And so listen, if you walk in here with guilt and with shame, listen, you can just set that down. You don't have to carry it anymore. Let's keep reading verse 4. He goes on, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So this is the first time God changes a person's name. Now, Abram's name did mean exalted father. But here's what's interesting. That wasn't, meant, that wasn't pointing to him. That was pointing to Abram's father. He was the one who was exalted. He was the one who was great. Uh, Terah, we read about him in chapter 11, he was the one that was exalted. So far, Abram, no descendants, no people. It's not clear whether he's exalted yet. 
So his name pointed backwards. His new name, Abraham, means father of a multitude. It points forward. It points ahead to many future descendants. So you see, neither one points to Abraham exactly. His new name points forward. Not just a few descendants. He says a multitude. That's Hebrew for a whole mess of them. And as God changes Abraham's name, this is so interesting. He takes many of the promises he's already said, but he amplifies them. He, he adds some adjectives in front of them. And so instead of just, I'm going to multiply you, he says, I'm going to multiply you greatly. Instead of nations, it's a multitude of nations. Multitude again in verse 5. Instead of just fruitful, exceedingly fruitful. Instead of just nations, many nations, many kings. He is doubling down, God Almighty is, in amplifying these promises. I think he's trying to tell Abram, Abraham, it's bigger, it's bigger, it's bigger than you thought so far. And what God is doing is making it so that every time someone calls Abraham by name, it's going to remind him that it's bigger. It's bigger than him. It's about a multitude of nations that you haven't even fathomed yet, Abraham. And I think what God is doing here, hang with me, is that God is calling Abraham back to Genesis 12. And I say hang with me because it's nerd time again, okay? Again, I know there's, a, there's dozens of us. There's a few of us nerds in here. Uh, so you're going to love the next three minutes. If you're not one of those nerds, uh, just play on your phone for three minutes and then we'll come back. So... Remember, chapter 12, this was the structure of it. Remember we said in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, the structure tells you so much. So we get two commands. And each, after each command is three sets of promises. So that first command was to go. And that came with three promises there. And Abraham has been really focused on these three promises. He's been asking God about them. He's been working to make them happen. He's been, he has been really focused here. Why? Because those first three promises are all about him. So, of course he will. He's like that old Cowboys receiver, Terrell Owens. I love me some me. I think when God said that part, Abraham's, man, he's listening intently. But so far, he has largely neglected that second command and second set of promises. And what's that second command? Go be a blessing. And not just a little bit, like to all the nations of the earth. And God tells Abram, this is the why, this is the purpose. You are ble- I'm blessing you for the purpose of you blessing the earth. That's been the purpose from the beginning. Abraham has been blessed to be a blessing. So what God is doing here, he's calling Abram's attention back to this purpose that he has largely neglected. And one of the ways he does this is with a new sign. He gives them a new covenant sign. And we get the sign of circumcision. Now, I... I'm convinced that to this day, up in heaven, Abraham is still probably a little bitter, and him and Noah have a rivalry, and he still wants to know, why did Noah get the covenant sign of a rainbow, and I get the covenant sign of circumcision? That's how I would feel. Well, one of the reasons is, y'all, this sign is filled with purpose. It's filled with meaning, and the meaning is the purpose of the covenant. It's multifaceted, it's rich, but I think there's one meaning that would have been obvious to them, but we often miss. You see, circumcision wasn't a new thing in the ancient Near East. Lots of different people practiced circumcision, and God is using that to teach them. It was particularly practiced in Egypt. And in Egypt, it was an initiation ritual for Egyptian priests. It was a way a person dedicated their life to the service of their deity. And you think about a priest, what is the role of a priest? 
Well, a priest's life isn't just about them. A priest intercedes between God and the people. He is that intermediary. There was one part that was unique totally to Israel, though, that no one else did. And the part that was unique was that every male was to be circumcised. Every single one of them. So what is God trying to tell them there? He's trying to tell them, not a few priests, not just the Levites, a kingdom of priests, a nation of priests, each and every person who will represent God to the world. For what purpose? To be a blessing. So that every nation, tribe, and tongue will know the Lord. That's the message. And so follow this. God reveals himself as God Almighty and then immediately reminds Abraham to be a blessing. What's the message there? I think it's this. The bigger God is to you, the bigger your life will be to others. The bigger God is to you, God Almighty, the bigger your life will be to others. See, we have a tendency because of this kind of live in an individualistic culture. We have a tendency to make my walk with Christ only about me. You know, how am I doing with God? How am I and God? How are we? Feels perfectly normal. Feels natural. Feels like a fish in water. But it's very individualistic. That God's work in my life Often with us, it looks like this. If we, if we could put a picture of what God's doing. It's just kind of self-contained. Here's my life, my circle, and that's the sum total of what God is doing. And it's very self-contained. But y'all, the Bible is not as individualistic as we are. In the Bible, see, God is always doing something much bigger. He intends his work to ripple out. And so what he's doing is in me isn't only for me. And so I think biblically, a better picture of what God is doing in our lives looks like this. And it's supposed to ripple out. God does something in me, but it is not self-contained, you see. And the bigger you understand God to be, the bigger you understand his purpose in your life. He isn't just saving me. He's building a kingdom, an eternal kingdom. And I am just a part of that. And so you can think of it like these concentric circles. Good. God does something. God Almighty reveals himself to Abraham, and, and what he does, it just ripples out farther and farther and farther. See, it, listen, th- hear me. It is good. It is so good to think about what God is teaching you, what God is doing in your life. But could you name what he's doing in the lives of five other people around you? Could you answer what God wants to do through you in their life? Again, we need to be, it's important for us to be praying for what we want and what we need. Do you know what the people around you are praying for? Because it's bigger. It's bigger than just you. What are you doing to shape the faith of the next generation? I read one commentator said, and I think he's right, the, whole, the point of the whole book of Genesis is to convince us to live our lives on behalf of those who will be born after we die. To understand that God Almighty is doing something bigger than just us. And so if you were to die today, would what God had done in your life, will it keep rippling out or is it done? Will it stop? See, if we're not very careful, we can use spiritual things to get really self-obsessed, can't we? Listen, I'm guilty. I know I can do that. I can, I can spiritualize my selfishness with the best of y'all. It can turn into all this kind of self-focus, self-perfection. You know, I got to go to all the conferences and I got to read all the books and get all the experience and I got to keep everything in perfect order. 
But y'all, eventually, that's just exhausting, isn't it? Me and Melissa were driving around. This has been a couple weeks ago, and I keep seeing advertisements for, like, relaxation spas and zero-gravity baths and, and oils and fitness and all that. And I, all I could think was, man, H-Church seems real expensive and real stressful to do all the things I'm supposed to do to relax. Y'all know what I'm saying? It's exhausting because, y'all, self-perfection is a bottomless pit. None of it will ever be enough. I've heard it said, humility is not thinking of yourself less. No, not think, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. And so maybe yeah, some of us need to kind of stop obsessing over ourselves and think about others more. Because the big God Almighty wants his work in your life to ripple out. And the ripple effects, as you work your way out, that's way bigger than just your life. Let's keep reading verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. So then we get to verse 15. And God remembers Sarah which Abraham had not done. Up until now, y'all, Abram had largely forgotten Sarah. He has not treated her well. He's kind of treated her like she's been expendable to him. He hasn't treated her as a true partner. And God says, no, 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 no. Abram, my promises were to her every bit as much as they were to you. In fact, some of God's harshest rebukes of Abraham have to do with his treatment of wife, his wife, Sarah. And I think there's a reason for that. Because, see, as the person nearest to Abraham, Sarah was kind of like the canary in the coal mine. She was the first indication that Abraham's forgetting that this whole thing isn't all about him. So, how are you going to bless all the nations of the earth if you're not even remembering your wife, Sarah, right next to you? And so God gives her this name that means mother of royalty. He says, kings will come from you. And this is a direct reference to another covenant that's coming up called the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel 7, God is going to promise an everlasting dynasty, a king whose kingdom will have no end. It'll never end. And he even says in the middle of that covenant, he says, this king, he will be to me a son. He will be my son. And again, Jesus' genealogy comes in. Jesus shows up on the scene and his genealogy points out this Jesus He's from David. And then at his baptism, the father, this voice from heaven says, hey, him, he's my son. He's saying, this is the king. This is the son that I promised Sarah. So again, on our side of history, we're supposed to look back and go, wow, God Almighty did it. He did it. He kept the lineage from Sarah all the way through David, all the way through the exile, all the way to Jesus. El Shaddai worked in Sarah's life. And it rippled out into the whole world. And then we get verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael live, might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and shall 
you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So what happens here is God confirms, no, you will have this son, this impossible miracle that seems like it can't happen. You're in a pickle, but it's going to happen. And Abraham, for the second time in chapter 17, falls on his face. Now, you may remember the first time he fell on his face, what was he doing? He was worshiping. That was right on. That was a great response. This time, he falls on his face to laugh. Now, this is interesting to me. So when he sees that God is big El Shaddai, he worships. But when it comes time for God to actually do the impossible, he laughs. Listen, y'all, I can identify with that. Sometimes I find it is easier to believe God and trust God for something that's kind of far off and generic, like heaven. Yeah, one day, far off heaven. I trust you for that. But when we are asked to believe God will do a certain thing in a specific time, we find believing much more difficult, don't we? You know, it's kind of like, I, I can believe God but for, for my eternal future, but when it's time to pay bills, that's my department. That's my territory. And I know, I know in a room this size, there are some of you that you are in the middle of situations that feel impossible. Financially, broken relationships, health, loved ones who are lost. And I know, I know when you're in the middle of it, it is hard to believe God Almighty when you're right smack dab in the middle of it. But watch what God does here. He tells him you're going to have a son, and he gives him the name. This is our fourth name. He names him laughter. That's what Isaac means. It means laughter. God is saying, when, I know it seems impossible, but when it's all said and done, God Almighty will get the last laugh. Not in a vengeful way, in a redemptive way. He is redeeming Abraham's laughter. He is redeeming his doubts. Because there's two kinds of laughter, right? There's the laughter of disbelief and skepticism, but then there's the laughter of joy. And I think that's what's in view with Isaac's name. God is saying, you know what? I'm going to replace the first with the second. I'm going to replace the doubt with the joy. Your doubt, your skepticism will turn to joy because I am God Almighty and I can do that. And so every time you call this boy's name, every time you hear somebody else call this boy's name, you're going to be filled with the laughter of joy, remembering that God Almighty did the impossible in your life. He kept his promise. See, when God Almighty, when he names Abraham, he names Sarah, he names Isaac, here's what he's doing. He's giving them a truth and a purpose beyond their present circumstances, beyond what they can see right in front of their face. It's a reality that they can't see yet. And the most important decision they make throughout the whole book, the most important decision they make is whether they can believe God or not, whether they can trust him with that promise or not whether what he says is actually more powerful than the reality in front of their face or not. And it's the same for you. It's the same for me. I like the way R. Kent Hughes put it. He said, the way we live is determined by what we think of God. If our God is El Shaddai, the awesome, mighty God of this account, then our lives will live out the fullness of God's promise to us. What you truly believe about God is the most important thing in your life. Any thoughts of a God less potent than the God of Abraham will shrink your soul and neutralize your faith. God Almighty 
has named what is true about you. The most important decision you make, and you make this decision every day, the most important decision you make every day is whether to believe him or not. Remember, Genesis is not a bunch of old stories. God is setting a pattern, a pattern for how we have a relationship with him. God makes promises beyond our current reality, and his people trust him enough to build their whole life on those promises. That is faith. So I want you to think about this morning. What's something that God says is true of you, but you have a real hard time believing it in the face of your current circumstances? Maybe your current circumstances don't match up to what God has named that is true about you. And listen, I'm not talking about a BMW, okay? None of that prosperity gospel stuff. In his word, what has he declared to be true of you? Maybe it's that you're accepted, beloved as his child, even though you're not blameless. Maybe that it's that you're sinful. You're not as good as you think you are. Maybe it's that he'll never leave you or forsake you. Maybe that you're loved. Maybe you're forgiven. Your sins as removed as far as the east is from the west. And you say, but you understand, it's really bad. It's like over and over again, it's really, really bad. And you have a hard time because of that. You cannot believe that God's not disappointed in you, that he is actually delighted in you. Maybe you have a hard time with all our marketing and materialism and the things that are all so shiny and nice, you have a hard time believing that this world is not your home and it will never satisfy. One more vacation is not going to do it. A little more money in the account isn't going to do it. Maybe. Maybe it's simply that God works all things for the good of those who have been called by his name. And understand, understand because of where you are right now, you cannot even fathom how anything good can come of this. Whatever that is, whatever you have a hard time believing that is true about you, what would tomorrow look like? What would tomorrow look like if you decided you could trust God Almighty in that area? Think about how how would your thoughts be different, your actions, your uh, spending habits, your time, your anxiety level, your emotions, your interactions with your kids, with your work, your relationships. How would those shift if you decided, you know what, I can build my whole life on the promises of God instead of just reacting to my current circumstances? What would be different? What would you do different and think different and feel different? Whatever it is, here's my appeal to you. Decide today that you can trust God Almighty in that area. And then go walk out those doors and live like it. And as you do that, and as your trust in him grows, as we see it growing with Abraham, as your trust in him grows, remember, God has also named the purpose for your life. You are blessed to be a blessing. And as God becomes bigger in your life, let your life become bigger to others. Let God Almighty, El Shaddai, let him ripple out of your life, into your community, into this world, and even into eternity. Let's pray together. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.